Well, good morning, church. As you find your seat, please open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, that's the first book of the New Testament. If you get to Mark, Luke, and John, go back to the left. Matthew chapter 2, we'll look uh, at verses 1 and 2 and then on into 23 uh, for our time this morning in God's Word. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here. Grateful to get to open up God's Word with you all. We are concluding a series today looking at six different names of Jesus through the Advent uh, season, and next Sunday we will jump back in to the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, the I Say to You series, understanding how Jesus is the fulfillment uh, of the law that the Lord has prescribed from the very beginning with his people. Um, and so we'll look at two names t- today from Matthew chapter 2. Matthew packed six different names of Jesus into the first two chapters of his gospel uh, account And yet it's uh, in John that it's recorded that as Jesus is putting his disciples together, his team together of these different uh, men who would be his closest followers and whom he would entrust to be his witnesses in the uh, ancient world as the church is birthed out of the ministry of Jesus, he begins to call these different disciples. And and as he is calling them, one comes to a man named Nathaniel. Uh, and this uh, man, Nathaniel, was actually quite a hater. Let me explain it to you this way. is because he heard that the Messiah was going to be come, coming from out of Nazareth. And, and his response to that, when he heard that the Messiah is coming from Nazareth, he responds to this other soon-to-be disciple, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's a hater. That's not loving. That's not kind. He was talking smack behind Nazareth's back, let alone behind the Messiah. And soon as Jesus is so good to do, he approaches this hater. He, he draws near to him. And in this particular first, uh, or in this particular portion of scripture, as he sees Jesus coming, so he goes from believing that nothing good can come out of Nazareth to saying this in John chapter 1, verse 49. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You were the son of God, you're the king of Israel. Nathaniel goes from believing that nothing good can come out of a particular place to, to calling the one who has come from that particular place the son of God, the king of Israel. I wonder, how does that kind of transition happen? Some of you, that's your story. You were a hater. Maybe you still are a hater. Believing that nothing good can come from this particular movement, can come from this Jesus, and all of a sudden you find yourself calling him God and King. I'd like to suggest to you that's for two reasons, which I'd like to prove from this particular text today, which I think this text bears witness to, is that the reason that kind of transition can take place is, one, Jesus is actually king. If he is not actually king, that kind of transition doesn't take place. So he actually is king. Not only so, it's the kind of king that he is that is so transformative. It is precisely because he comes from a place that we would suggest nothing good can come from there. It is because he's the kind of king that comes from obscurity, that comes from a place where we expect nothing good to come from it. It is precisely because of that that the work and ministry and word of Jesus is indeed that transformative. And it's that kind of transformative power that I trust through God's word will take place for us today. So the notice for us is not take good notes so that you can become something new tomorrow, but trust that when the king shows up by his spirit, you can be transformed on the spot. 
that haters can become worshipers in a matter of verses, in a matter of moments. So let's ask that God would do that work. Let's acknowledge his presence and submit to him as we come to his word. Father, as we've just said, we desire to be changed. There are things going on in my heart, some I can't even identify from this past week, frustrations, pains, anxieties, let alone things that are very clearly identifiable in our world, things that frustrate and aggravate and are broken. And so, God, we see our great need for you in our hearts and in our world. And so, Father, I pray that you would bring transformation today, not that we would just be inwardly changed beings, but that we would be transformed, that we might be used by you to see your kingdom come and your will be done right here on earth as it is in heaven. And so, God, help us. Help me. Help my brothers and sisters. Help my friends, my neighbors here. That we would be hopeful as we approach this text, as we have seen a person like Nathaniel change in a matter of moments who you then call a disciple. Help us, Father, to be submissive to your word, submissive to your will, hopeful, expectant. Father, this word is not boring. This word is not stale. We are the ones often detached from its power. And so I pray, Father, that you would help our hearts to come in line with your word today. That we might become a compliant, obedient, submissive, and contrite people. That we might become a people, a church. Church in the square would become a church who is holy, set apart, and useful in your hands for your purposes. We ask that you would do that and a thousand other things we can't even think of right now, God, that that your name would be famous, that the name of Jesus would be lifted high, and that we might become the church you're calling us to be. We ask all of that in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, as we've mentioned, the, the, the kingship of Jesus is quite unique. It is unexpected, and this is what begins to become very clear to us in Matthew chapter two. So look at it with me. It is unique, yet it is straightforward and clear. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Many wonderful Christmas pageants begin in such ways, right? Many wonderful Christmas stories where the children come up. We read this passage, and on we have this wonderful story of Christmas, all of these familiar players, you've got Herod, you've got these wise men who are not actually quite sure what that means just yet, right? But they're there, they're part of the Christmas story, they've got their own song, right? And of course you have Jesus, sweet little baby, Jesus having just been born. You have all of the elements and yet we also have incredible tension. See, Matthew makes it clear that Jesus' birth takes place in Bethlehem. This previously innocuous kind of city becomes center, becomes the beneficiary of a high and extraordinary messianic anticipation from places like Micah and also back in verse 6, or upwards in verse 6, as we'll read, uh, quoted there from Matthew, or Micah chapter 5. It's a town where King David was from, and so therefore there was much messianic anticipation from this particular town, although previously completely forgettable. So after Matthew really introduces us to this overarching theme of the arrival of Christ, he gives us a genealogy, if you remember, from chapter 1, and then he summarizes the birth of Christ, and now we step into chapter 2. And when you look at chapter 2, there are some things that actually feel a bit disconnected. It's guided by place. 
See, if we, if we look at the very beginning, we see Bethlehem in, of Judea, and then we see Jerusalem, both in verse 1. This is the first time in Matthew's account that he's giving us any sense of place. In fact, all of chapter 2 will be organized by place, by setting, not only in Bethlehem and then into Jerusalem, but then in Egypt in verse 13 and onward into Nazareth in verse 23. This geographical or narrative shift takes place and it feels a bit bizarre. Like right in the middle of that, there's this extraordinarily violent sort of moment from Herod the king in the middle of this movement around of Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And all of this begins to give us this sense, this context of a people, of a place, of movement. And because of these sort of distinguishing markers of chapter 2, you could actually take chapter 2 out of the narrative and it would make perfect sense in the transition from chapter 1 into chapter 3. There's some fundamental distinctions there that this, this storyline, if you will, moving from chapter 1 into chapter 3 would make perfect sense. But there is much here that contributes to our overarching understanding about what takes place in chapter 1 and what takes place in chapter 3. Let's consider first these wise men, a curious bunch of folks. Much ink has been spilt. I'd like to suggest too much ink has been spilt trying to figure out who these guys are, about what these wise men were all about. In fact, the word magi, uh, one scholar writes, was originally applied exclusively to members of the priestly caste of the Medes and Persians uh, who had esoteric skills in interpreting dreams. However, the use of the word broadened to embrace various categories of persons who were marked out by their superior knowledge and ability, including astrologers, soothsayers, and even sages. From here, the term became, deba became debased first to functioning as a label for sorcerers and magicians in general, and then in the end becoming a term for quacks, deceivers, and seducers. So this has an incredible flexibility, this particular word, magi, which we have wise men. We, we, th this has this, this song even that is completely detached from the complexity of this particular word. We three kings that we sing around this time of year. Perhaps you sing it. Therefore, it's best for us to understand, taking all of this into account, there's a ton of information, there's a ton of possibility. It's best, understanding the context of Matthew, it's best for us to understand these magi, not as kings, which they are popularly recognized and suggested, but rather as ancient sages with some sort of astrological or astrology ability. They have some ability of looking into the stars and figuring out what's going on. Where you and I might see bright, twinkling lights, they actually see a story. They see connection. They see methodology and they see purpose. This is most consistent with this particular context. To this end, you can research all kinds of natural astrological events if you have a lot of time and a lot of joy and a lot of energy in that particular direction. You can try to figure out what particular astrological event might they have been considering. Some have offered very specific situations. One happening in about 7 or 8 BC when Juniper and Saturn lined up, right? And this is what many people suggest probably was the, could have been the guiding light, but we have to acknowledge that was probably too early for this particular moment to have taken place. And ultimately, it can't just be a natural occurrence because for heaven's sake, that star ends up saying, here's where Jesus is, hanging right over him. So I'd like to suggest to you, no matter who these magi are, these wise men are, the story is not just about their identity. Or no matter how this particular star came about, it's not about it being a natural occurrence that we try to figure out which particular event was it, but trusting and seeing and understanding something supernatural is happening here. 
Something incredible is happening here that the sovereign and invisible hand of God is bringing this light to tell a story to these particular individuals that they might become part of the story of the arrival of the Messiah. See, with the popularity of this passage, there's a lot of things to distract us. There's a lot of things to grab our attention and to move away from what is most obvious. Church, I want to help us in this because we are very easily distracted about what is not most obvious, what is most central, what is most clear about the scriptures. Who are these magi? Where was this star? I probably have paid too much attention to it already. Matthew's main point here is that Jesus is born. Is that Jesus is born. This is what he is enraptured with. This is where his attention is. And in fact, not just that he was born, but about the nature of his birth, about who this Jesus is. We can pay so much attention to other things that we miss that I believe Matthew's saying at least three things to us in two verses about who this Jesus is. The first is that Jesus is born king. He is born king. Did you see that in verse 2? saying, where is he who has been born king? He didn't achieve this after he worked at it. He didn't work his way into kingship. He was born and he was immediately, simultaneously king. Not just the reality of his birth, but its nature becomes very clear here. In Matthew chapter 2, we read that he is born a king. In other words, Jesus has come and has already has this regal authority, has this authority over heaven and earth and namely bestowed upon him as the son of God over the people of God, given this wonderful name, Jesus, which means God saves. That is a kingly kind of task. Kings are the ones who have salvation. Kings are the ones who do this saving work. And Jesus' kingship is spiritual. His is a rule and a reign established in the hearts and lives of believers. As Louis Burkhoff puts it, it bears directly and immediately on a spiritual end, the salvation of his people. It is administered, his kingship, not by force or external means, but by word and the spirit, which is the spirit of truth and wisdom, of justice, of holiness, of grace and mercy. This is why Jesus described his kingdom as a kingdom that was not of this world. Not because it was invisible, but because it was altogether different than any other kingdom we have ever experienced. And so from the moment Jesus is born, he is the one who is presiding over salvation, over the care of his kingdom people in and beyond the spiritual realm. Jesus is born king. That tells us something about the kind of king he is. Secondly, he's not only born king, but get this, he's born at a time and in a place where there's already a king on a throne. Okay, this is where it's going to start getting really uncomfortable for all of us, all right? Myself included. Notice in verse 1, these are the days of Herod the king. And these people come from the east to Jerusalem and they ask the king, where is the king? Those are fighting words. See, a lot of us like to think that sweet little baby Jesus also becomes this sweet 33-year-old Jesus, and he just stays in his place, is really nice, and plays well with others, colors in the lines, does everything that everybody wants him to. He's still king, but not crazy king, not takeover king, not controlling king, not authoritative king, not confrontational king, not presiding, ruling, and reigning king, just a king we can control. 
That's the Christmas king we're often very comfortable with. But right here, Jesus is born as king in a setting, in a regime, in an order, in a region where there's already a king on the throne. Ooh, it's about to get good. Because the thing, I don't know much about kings, but what I've learned is they don't share authority very well. They don't share their, their reign very well. They're not eager to, to differentiate between their authority and someone else's authority and saying, you can have a little bit and I'll have a little bit. They take over. Their office is meant to extend the boundaries and borders of their particular rule and reign so that they're viewed better than any other king that came before them and any other king that comes after them. They don't share. Herod should not be seen as one who is ready to share, but one who is ready to fight. In fact, we see this in the way that he very quickly feels threatened. The rest of this narrative gives us a picture that he feels incredibly threatened. See, the nature of Jesus' kingship is instantly confrontational and uncompromising. Instantly confrontational and uncompromising. How provocative to be called king while there's a king on a throne. And so Jesus becomes immediately a target especially as we see Herod's emotion begin to unfold, not just to threat, but actual to murder, it reveals there's this political aspect to Jesus' kingship that we often, particularly in a majority culture, Western culture, do not understand the absolute weight of the political nature of Jesus' kingship. He was a threat to the political powers of his day because of who he was, because of what he was called, because of the ways that people came around him because of all of the work that he had done. And yet he's also a personal king, not just a cosmic king over everything, but also a personal king. He becomes the Lord of the king of my life when I submit or when you submit to him. It's a kind of invisible authority that rules and reigns even over invisible spaces. So he is over the social order, over the cosmic order, over arching and overshadowing every structure of power in any city, in any nation, in any region. His is a confronting kind of kingship, a, an uncompromising kind of authority. And many of these central details of this passage become to bring all of this into clarity and fruition for us. But he's not just born a king. He's born a king when there was already a king on the throne. And today, many pseudo-kings sit on pseudo-thrones today, do they not? And Jesus is still king. Jesus is born a king. He's born when another king is already on a throne. But thirdly, what we realize, not only these things, but Jesus is born a king, and then you have these outsiders coming to announce to insiders that he is the king. You notice that? The wise men come from the east to Jerusalem. They come from outside of that. It's bad enough to tell a sitting king that there's another king. But if you come from another part of the world and tell him there's another king, another king of the Jews, you don't value your life. Notice these magi. They come from these two Jerusalem. They're not Jews. We don't really know much about them. And as we've discussed, they are these sages or astrologers. They were following a star. But their quest was not simply informed by sort of astrological curiosity, but by worship. Notice what they've come to do. They have come to worship. For we saw his start when it rose, the latter half of verse 2 says, and have come to worship him. They haven't just come to marvel and curiosity. They've come to bow the knee to the true king. That's the word that Matthew employs there. When the Magi's intentions become clear in the latter half of verse 2, it means to bow down before a human as a sign of respect or before a divine figure as an act of worship where we get our English word for prostrate, to, to fall down, face down on the ground. This is what they are intending to do before the newborn king. 
It's a term of full and utter and complete even physical surrender. Each synoptic gospel actually uses this particular word. They use it a little bit differently. Mark and Matthew are most familiar, use it most regularly. What is clear here, despite their journey or where they're coming from, they're telling Herod the king, we're coming to worship a different king. We're coming to bow the knee. We're coming to submit ourselves to him. What we have learned is that the Magi are coming, again, not just to worship, but as outsiders. The ancient faith of God's chosen people, they're, they're not part of that. In order to worship this newborn king that is born through the line of God's people, this is strikingly gospel, that, that the Lord would use people outside of the family, outside of the boundaries of our comfort zone. We may be willing to listen to one of our own speak a hard truth, but not somebody from outside of our family. But how gospel is this? Didn't the Apostle Paul spend much of his waking moments clarifying that the gospel is not simply for the Jew, but for the Gentile? We must understand that that's not a Pauline idea. He is literally following in the wake of the king. He's literally communicating what is always true about the kingship, about the kingdom of Jesus Christ, that it has not just been for those who we might deem to be on the inside, but for all of the world, even those on the outside, not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile as well. This has always been true about Jesus. Paul doesn't invent this idea of inclusion. Jesus' whole story is bringing those from outside in and even making those who think they're on the inside wonder whether or not they're out. See, Jesus is born king. This tells us his kingship is not of this world. Jesus is born king when somebody else is already king. This tells us that Jesus' kingship is confrontational and uncompromising. Jesus is born king and outsiders come and tell insiders about it tells us that Jesus' kingship is for all and over all people. Let me get to verse 23. Nazareth is, is never mentioned in the Old Testament. This particular place completely overlooked by Old, Old Testament writers for one reason or another. We would elect to say because of God's sovereignty and his will. But archaeologists have investigated this particular region and found that probably about 5,000 people lived there at the time of Jesus. However, it's unclear we hear Nathaniel's sarcasm, why it is that they disdain this place so much. But we realize few people expected very much to come from there. Little is known except that we don't expect much to come from these people. Which is, of course, begs the question, when we get to verse 23, how Matthew could have been speaking this particular way. Look at verse 23 in Matthew chapter 2. And when he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that was spoken by the prophet, that, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. So Nazareth, Nazareth, not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament, now becomes a fulfillment of a prophetic word here in Matthew that he, that's Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. Well, first, let's consider more of the structure of chapter 2 and on into chapter 3. Look at verse 5, verse 17, verse 23. Verse 5, verse 17, 23. Just sort of retinize, as one of my seminary professors used to say. You don't have to read the whole page. Just retinize it. Just look at it. Little did he know that gave me incredible you know, freedom to never read a page again. I just looked at all of them. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 17, verse 23, and then chapter 3, verse 1. There, there's, a, there's a similarity in each of all of these in the way that Matthew is organizing his gospel account. Notice what, what he's doing is he is connecting a prophetic word in the Old Testament with a fulfillment in the nature of Jesus' arrival throughout the entirety of chapter 2 and chapter 3. Verse 5, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Micah foretold this in Micah 5 too, and so Matthew quotes it. Verse 17, Herod murdered a number of children in the wake of not being able to find Jesus. 
Jeremiah prophesied weeping of children in Jeremiah 31, verse 15. And then you get into chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. John the Baptist prepares the way of the Lord. Isaiah predicted that this would take place, a forerunner of the gospel of the Messiah in Isaiah 40, verse 3, which leaves verse 23. His structure leads us, Matthew's structure leads us to trust his scholarship, to believe that he's intentional, to believe that he is processing and explaining Jesus' arrival with incredible clarity, with incredible detail, connected to the scriptures. In other words, he's not making up stuff. He's being precise. He's being clear. He's going to the place we all should go to to understand his particular situation, God's word. He is going over and over again to God's word and seeing the fulfillment of those things take place. But there are two primary distinctions with verse 23, then from verse 5 and 17 and on into chapter 3. The first is that there's no direct quote. There are three direct quotes and the other three uh, references to the fulfillment of prophecy. But here there's a general statement that this fulfills what the prophets had spoken. The second thing that is clear is that Matthew speaks in a plural form, not in a singular form, where he was talking about Micah and Jeremiah and Isaiah. Now he's speaking about the prophets. He speaks in a plural sort of way, as opposed to the way of identifying a particular prophet. Now he is speaking more holistically. What is most likely taking place here, as we think about the fact that that Nazareth not being mentioned in the Old Testament, this structure taking place here in Matthew 2 and 3, what is most likely taking place is a word play. A word play taking place with the word Nazarene or Nazarite or Nazareth and the word for branch in the Hebrew scriptures. As one scholar put it, the most likely play on words in Matthew's mind is in the similarity between the Hebrew word for branch, Nasser, and Nazareth. So there's this linguistic opportunity taking place for us to understand what in the world is he talking about? If this is not being mentioned in the Old Testament, what is Matthew referring to that the prophets are speaking about? Isaiah chapter 11. Why don't you go ahead and turn there all the way to the left or type in Isaiah chapter 11. If you get to the Psalms, keep going to the right, to Proverbs, on into Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and following reads this way. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. A messianic figure is being described in Isaiah chapter 11 and the way that they are being described is as a branch, an offshoot of Jesse, the father in the line of David. We are to understand Jesus is this branch of Jesse. So when Matthew writes, the prophet spoke uh, that we would be called, that he would be called a Nazarene, he is speaking of the one who would be the branch, the offshoot, the branch that would bear much fruit that was yet unknown. Jesus would be known pretty soon as the Nazarene, the branch, the the one that we have been waiting for, this messianic promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Matthew and Mark are incredibly fond of calling Jesus 
the Nazarene. All of this confirms yet again a couple of things for us. One, Jesus is king. Matthew is saying this again by calling him the Nazarene, by saying that this messianic promise, the branch, is Jesus. But also the kind of king that he is, not only consistent with the line, the fact that Jesus is tied to this particular place is deeply instructive for us as well. This is a kind of place of obscurity, a kind of place of insignificance, which re- reveals a lot about a king. This is not where we would expect a king to come from, not Nazareth, right? We all with Nathaniel would have been like, are you sure? Are you sure he's going to come from Nazareth? Not from a prominent city filled with prominent people doing prominent things. He's a king from Nazareth. He's a king from that town that, that you would stop at for gas, right? On that long road trip. And you looked around, and if you didn't say it, you thought it. How could anyone live here? That town, that's Nazareth. That's the kind of place the Messiah of the world comes from. That's King Jesus. This sets him apart as this altogether different, not just the offspring of Jesse, not just the long-awaited king, but the king who came from the place that we all forgot about. King who came from the place that we would have never selected. Jesus is king, yet Jesus is from Nazareth. The juxtaposition should be startling to us, but not because we shouldn't have expected it, but because it's so beautiful, right? We should, have been, we should have known that this is exactly how God would show up through his son. Why? Because this is who God's always been. God has always shown up in a paradoxical kind of way that should not surprise us except that it's so beautiful once he does. What I mean to say is that he is consistent. He is faithful. He is steady. He always shows up in this incredibly brilliant and divine paradox. We are the ones who continue to put him in boxes of our expectation. See, God embodies these realities in a number of different ways. He's high, and yet he makes himself low. He's holy, and yet he's loving. He's set apart, and yet he's intimate. He's compassionate, yet just. He is zealous, yet he's slow to anger. He's merciful, but he's wrathful. He's kind, yet he's jealous. He's gracious, yet he's righteous. He's invisible, but he's knowable. He is divine, yet human. He's king, yet Nazarene. Are you picking up what God's been throwing down for ancient of days, since all of time? God holds apparent contradictions in utter harmony within his own character. This is who he is. We should celebrate this unmatched blend of beauty and truth. But something holds us back. We can't quite give ourselves over to an audible amen, right? We're even holding ourselves back right now. Like, is this where I insert celebration? Yes. Because there's no one like that. There's no one like him. There's no one who is able to walk in such brilliant harmony with what we perceive to be contradictions. See, the, God, the God of the Bible cannot be fully understood. As soon as we think he is holy and set apart, he draws near to us. As soon as we grow entitled and think Jesus is just our homeboy, all of a sudden his justice and wrath is made plain. When I think I'll get disregarded because of my sin. I'm wrapped up with his grace and mercy. Now, I want to be careful. He's not a manic God. He's not unpredictable, irrational, and erratic. That's not who he is. Rather, he is faithful, consistent, and utterly purposeful. 
But what I am trying to explain to you and trying to remind myself is that we presume upon him all the time. We form a box and tell him to fit in it every single day. And he can't be bound in that box. You see, religion is based upon a God we can figure out and fit into a tidy concept of our own morality. And we keep trying to approach God religiously, even as modern people. One of the ways that I think this is best explained is when we look at the God who is loving and yet holy and how we choose one or the other. As modern people, we have a tendency to embrace a God who is only loving. Often, this is to the neglect of God as holy. We try to fit God in a framework which suggests he is permissive of sin and has no better plan for the world than some sort of ubiquitous inclusivity which gives everyone the same things all the time for all of time. In this modern religious framework, we learn to play a game. Just love people, abandon constricting rules which take away personal agency and liberty, and ultimately we try to control this deity through our loving behavior and our open mindset. In other words, if we love people, we can do whatever we want. This becomes the gospel that we boil our God down to. As traditional people, perhaps you grew up in the church, we have a tendency of embracing God who is only holy. Often this is the neglect of God as love. We try to fit God into a framework which suggests he is unforgiving and always pressing upon us new commands and mandates and rules which we must learn, follow, obey, and repeat in other words, he can do no better, better than an exacerbated parent who just wants their kid to fall in line so that they will be comfortable. In this traditional religious framework, we learn to play the game, obey the rules and abandon grace and ultimately control this deity through our self-righteousness and our closed mindset about his righteousness and holiness. See, if we obey the rules we believe, we can then do as we please. We show up to church, we can do as we please. If we pray, we can do as we please. If we give, we can do as we please. If we generally follow the, the goodness and the, the, the ideas and rules of the Bible, we can do as we please. See, either way, church, whether you are in this more modern framework of believing God is only loving or this more traditional framework of believing that God is only holy, in both cases, we are refusing to bow our knee to a king. In both cases, we are refusing to embrace him as king from Nazareth. Just like Herod. Look back through the chapter, back to Matthew chapter 2. What begins to take place is, is Herod's fearfulness becomes to be almost like the, the emotional center of this particular chapter. See, when Herod was the king in verse 3 and 4, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. What did he hear? That Jesus was born king of the Jews. This was uncompromising. This was threatening to him. All of Jerusalem with him. Verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Move to verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent uh, them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring, him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now move to verse 13. Now when they had departed, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Verse 16, Herod, unable to find the Christ child, unable to find Jesus, wrapped up in his rage, his anger, his hatred, his frustration. Verse 16, then Herod 
when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod lost his mind. Why? Because he wasn't king anymore. Because he wasn't king. And I think deep down we understand that to condescend to the one true king means that we lose control. And so we try to make him fit. This is what we all do. By our sin, in our sin, when confronted by the true king, the king from Nazareth, regal yet obscure, authoritative yet welcoming. We, have not a, we don't have a comfortable box to fit him in, so we start losing our minds. You can't control a king who comes from Nazareth. You can't control a king who was born king. You can't control a king who shows up where a king already is ruling and reigning. You can't control a king who brings outsiders in and pushes insiders out. You can't find a framework that makes sense for him. That's a kingdom that's not of this world. We don't have a comfortable box to fit this man into, and so we attempt to do exactly what Herod does, take him out and make him either just holy or just loving Because I think we intuitively know that Jesus is not willing to share his authority. He cannot. Yet one of the most powerful displays, profound pictures of this duality of Christ's nature is king yet Nazarene. Comes through the metaphor of lion and lamb through scripture. Jesus is the glorious lion and he is the sacrificial lamb. In fact, the latter half of Isaiah chapter 11 gives us this picture that we read earlier verses 6 through 9, of this lion and lamb. The preeminent picture of Christ is whispered there, and then it becomes really clear in John's vision and revelation. We see this picture of his power and his grace on full display when Jesus is on the cross, hanging on the cross for our sin, for our shame, suffering in our place. He is king, and yet he's Nazarene. He is lion, and yet he is lamb. He is authoritative because he is there by his own will in obedience to the Father. And yet, he is lamb in that he has come sacrificially in our place. This is a king who has stepped off of his throne and died in the place of his constituency. 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards explained this glorious dichotomy of Christ in his sermon entitled, The Excellency of Christ. Here's what he said. Thus Christ appeared at the same time and in the same act as both a lion and a lamb. He appeared as a lamb in the hands of his cruel enemies, as a lamb in the paws and between the devouring jaws of a roaring lion. Yea, he was a lamb actually slain by this lion. And yet at the same time as the lion of the tribe of Judah, he conquers and triumphs over Satan, destroying his own devourer as Samson did the lion that roared upon him. When he rent him as he would a kid. And in nothing has Christ appeared so much as a lion lion in glorious strength, destroying his enemies as when he was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. In his greatest weakness, he is most strong. And when he suffered most from his enemies, he brought the greatest confusion on his enemies. Thus, this admirable conjecture or conjunction of diverse excellencies was manifesting Christ in his offering up himself to God in his last sufferings. Because we want a king 
or rather a God that we can control, we try to force Jesus into a religious moralism or a modern inclusivity, this one picture and not the other, yet he never fits perfectly in either. Much like when Satan tried to devour our Lord, our Lord breaks through the boxes we force upon his character and his quality simply by showing up in a way that no way were we prepared for as king and Nazarene. And in doing so, the most paradoxical power, more yet, most yet by dying in our place on the cross, he saves us by dying for us. This is so familiar to us, we are no longer enamored by it. We hear that so often that we go, we're saved through the death of Christ. You are saved through death. That makes no earthly sense. That you are brought to life through the sacrificial death. That is lion and the lamb. That is one who is the authority over all things and using his authority for the poor in spirit, for the broken, for the marginalized, for the sinner like you and me. You don't, you can't get familiar with that. You can't get comfortable with that. You can't say, I've heard that before. That should draw you to worship, not boredom. Thank you, church. This should draw us to this paradoxical confusion. How in the world could I put him in a box? How in the world I can say that's just holy and not loving? How in the world can I say that's just loving and not holy? He is always both. And on the cross, we get the chief demonstration of that brilliant paradox of his character. See, when we come to Jesus and enter this kind of kingdom, here's the great joy, church. You become like him. You become like him. See, we, the reason that we believe we have to choose a king who is either holy or loving is because in our brokenness, we feel like we have to choose. I don't know how to be holy and loving at the same time. Ask my four children. They're like, he's either having a good day or an off day. He's either holiness or he's love. It's hard to see daddy being both. Hard to walk in that. In fact, the point is that when we become like Jesus, we begin to demonstrate to the watching world this characteristic and quality. And so the early church actually enjoyed this identification. Paul in Acts chapter 24 is on trial and like the one millionth time he's on trial in Acts, right? He's standing before this particular powers of the day and, and one of the governing authorities, the prosecutor comes up and here's what he says in Acts chapter 24. Since, though you were, though you, through you, we enjoy much peace and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, Reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. He's pumping up the person who he's trying to win the favor of, right? Verse 4. But to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, speaking about Paul, a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader, hear this, of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourselves, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accused him. Did you catch that? Tertullius, this prosecutor, called Paul and the followers of Jesus the sect of the Nazarene. They stirred up religious trouble because they obeyed Jesus and not the powers of the day. They began to show up in a way not like the one sitting on the throne in real space in real time in their particular region was king, but the one who ruled and reigned from their hearts like he was king. They followed Jesus to the Gentiles, bringing outsiders in. It upset the religious order. 
The non-Jewish world was set on fire because their Jesus was their Lord, not just a particular people like many would have them believe. They submitted, the church did, to Jesus, to the margins of their world. Can you even imagine, church, if this became true of us today? This became true of us, that we did not choose one or the other, but by God's grace, more and more became the church of Jesus, the Nazarene who was king and from Nazareth. See, as Jesus was the branch, the offshoot of Jesse, so you and I now, the scriptures teach us, are the branch of Christ. John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. When we become kingdom people, we become a kind of people who follow a king who came from Nazareth. One who is fully authoritative and yet one who moves to the margins of the forgotten places and forgotten people. We are the branches of Christ. And therefore, we should not be fit so easily into the boxes that our world tries to fit us into. My concern is we fit really nicely into some of them. Really nicely. And and in order to help us I want to think about two temptations for us as a church, which I believe are the temptations for every church, but let's just talk about those who are in the house today. It's easy to talk about people who aren't here, right? Right? Oh, don't, if you're not laughing, you're lying. Here are two temptations. The first takes all the information and cues from Scripture, which is a good start. All of our understanding about what we're supposed to do. However, it's void with any cultural connection or neighborly love. Therefore, we can be a church who delivers edicts and mandates and ideas to a people for whom we have zero affection and understanding. We can become a church who is holy, like a city on a hill that nobody likes. Because we're disconnected from them. We don't befriend them. We don't care for them. We don't love them. So we can be a church of ideas. We can be a church of the head and not of the heart. See, when we boil down God to simply holy, we become a church that is merely trying to live holy, but not trying to extend love. It's a temptation for us. Secondly, second type of church we need to be careful not to become is we take all of our information and all of our cues from the time in society, the cultural moment and condition that we find ourselves in. Not not inherently evil. However, this is void of any scriptural authority or scriptural truth. So when we cond ourselves to sort of cultural patterns and platitudes, morality sort of moves and bobs and weaves with any sort of cultural sensibility. We are not steadfast in God's word. We move to and fro with every shift of doctrine. This is the soil of modern inclusivity and appeasement. And both, I realize, are extremes, yet both are boxes that we often at different times can fit really nicely into. This happens when we're worried about the cost of speaking the truth of the gospel to a coworker or somewhere online, perhaps, or in our family at a dinner table. Where we back off, we fit nicely into a box of appeasement. Or sometimes we're ready to talk and nobody's asked us a question because our lives are not very intriguing. We're ready to answer all of the questions nobody's asking us because it's the truth and we've said it. We fit nicely into a box of religious, of religion, and of fundamentalism, and of that kind of aggression. To become a people who fit nicely into voting blocks, who fit nicely into sort of patterns of thinking, Jesus never fit into the patterns that a lot of churches fall into today. Jesus could never be counted upon the way that many of us are counted upon regularly on November's when the vote comes around. That, those people will vote this way. They'll do this. This is how they act. 
Jesus always showed up in a way that he always said he would, but it's always surprising. It's always unexpected and it's always beautiful and it's always true. It's always both. Can you even imagine if we became those kind of grace-filled, truth-filled people that when our neighbors, when our neighbors came to us and perhaps we saw them in sin, we were not ready, fire, aim. We were ready to love, to embrace, to befriend What if when our friends came with a question of judgment for us that we actually pointed the way towards the cross and not just towards our own lives and here's what I do and here's what I think but here's who God is. What if when our neighbors come to us and they desire to hear what we think in a particular situation we don't just try to talk about our upbringing or our particular cultural pattern or our ideas we say here's what God's word says we're trying to live this out. What if when our friends and neighbors come to us They're actually trapped in sin. We don't give them the best podcast we've heard. We give them God's word. What if when someone comes to us broken, messy, we don't act like our lives are together, come to us, we'll heal you, but say, hey, we went to the physician and let me tell you about him. We're all hurting too. Can you imagine if we became a people who were holy and loving? I think we would become the kind of people that came after a king who was born king who was born king when another king was on the throne, who came and brought outsiders in and insiders out, a people of a cosmic king who was also from Nazareth. I pray that becomes true of us, church. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would make us a people. You would make us this complex blend of a people that at first seems quite paradoxical, And it is actually what it means to be kingdom people who are loving and holy, who are gracious yet just, who seek righteousness but also extend mercy. God, that's really hard. That's really hard. And so we pray that you would continue to draw us to Jesus who embodies that perfectly, lovingly, and empowers us by his spirit to live in such a way because he is king and he is the Nazarene. And so I pray for my sisters. I pray for my brothers. I pray for myself. Father, would you reveal in our hearts how we either avoid aspects of your character, try to fit you into boxes and frameworks and ideas that make us feel comfortable, or ways that we just opt out in general and just believe that Jesus is my personal king, but not a king of the world, not a cosmic king. There's much for us to consider here, and so we need your Spirit's help. Direct and guide our attention in this. It might change our prayers, it might change the way we pick and select where we live might change the way that we think and read and speak about the news and current events, the way that we respond to our neighbors when they're in need. Make us a kingdom people that don't fit in this world because we're part of a different one and yet are very much connected to this world because you've called us here. So I pray that you do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.